One thing that you're looking forward to most being back at Salem Stadium. One thing you're not looking forward to at Salem Stadium. Well, I think the thing I'm looking forward to the most is just being familiar with the places that are around us, familiar with the hotel, knowing how to get back and forth, knowing the people, knowing that the people who are running the Stag Bowl have done it a gazillion times before and will do a great job. I think the thing I'm less looking forward to is it's just not as good a facility as we've been in now over the course of the past several years, right? From a technology standpoint and that kind of thing. Hopefully it will be great tailgating and maybe that will make up for it. Great tailgating. I think the thing I am not looking forward to the most, Pat, is the wind at Salem Stadium. The (laughs) wind. It doesn't always wind, but when it wins, it blows. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years, and we've had a podcast since 2007. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the only podcast directly from us here at D3Football.com. We are here every week, all season, all postseason, because we live and breathe this stuff. I am Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, first round in the books, 16 teams moved on to the second round. Most of them, as we expected, a couple of them not so much. All of them as Frank Rossi expected, that's for sure. Here in Podcast 344, Season 17, Episode 18, we are now, yes, indeed, halfway on the road to Salem or 25% of the way on the road to Salem, depending on how you think about it as we get you ready for Stag Bowl 50. We'll talk about all of the first round matchups. We'll talk with Jason Couch. He's the head coach of Alma. He will appear on Fast Five. We will do that and much more over the next hour plus. We have questions from you guys, the listeners to our podcast. We will answer a good number of those as well. And You know, for all of the things that could have happened, I actually feel like we had a pretty good first round. A couple of really great games. Maybe not as many stinkers as usual. Not as many stinkers. I think the thing that might be throwing some people off is maybe a a distinct lack of late game drama. Uh, Didn't have a ton of games come down to a final possession, but we did have a few of those games that did come down to a final possession. But for the most part, this first round played out uh, in about as competitive a manner as most first rounds do, this one uh, maybe slightly more so than others. Maybe my recollection of it is skewed a little bit, Greg, by the fact that after the noon games, the noon Eastern games ended, I went out to go do Alma DePauw post game stuff, and I didn't sit through the endings of all of those one o'clock games, of which maybe there weren't so many competitive or close ones in the end. Yeah, and the one o'clock block of kickoffs, I think we had uh, one game really that went down to the went down to the end of Wheaton and Mount St. Joseph, I think was pretty compelling through to the end. Uh, the other six one o'clock games, less so. Uh, you had a lot of uh, a lot of your uh, larger mismatches, I think, in that one o'clock block with uh, Whitewater Lacrosse. 
Wartburg, North Central all playing in that one o'clock block. Like the competitive games and all the ones won by the road teams were all on the right-hand side of the bracket, those noon games, and then that left-hand side with more good teams than perhaps the right side had more of the blowouts. That's true. All of the teams in the playoffs, Pat, are champions and good teams. We will not disparage the teams that, that whose seasons ended on Saturday. All champions, all good teams. All champions and one at large. Before we go any further, we should uh, recognize and thank the sponsor of this week's edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. And that is our friends at D3Photography.com. So these guys this week covered seven of those 16 first-round games while also simultaneously mega-staffing the Division Three Men's and Women's Cross-Country Championships in beautiful, scenic Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where these folks were on Saturday. You've got your... Aurora versus Co. That was a very interesting game. There's a photo of that on the front page of the website. You've got your Endicott versus Cortland. We had that featured out front earlier in the weekend. You've got your Randolph-Macon versus Christopher Newport. Unexpectedly, surprisingly close game. Remember, we used to have surprisingly close game in the podcast. That was one of them this week. UW-Whitewater against Bethel. UW-Lacrosse against Morris-Delaware Valley against Union. Great game as well. Seven games for you to take a look at in the uh, d3photography.com landscape. That's right, Pat. One of those games mentioned, shot by our guys at d3photography.com. Aurora at Co. might be your only chance to get any any photo or documented evidence of the 100-yard Co. College pick six. That is a play that happened while Aurora was switching between streams and nobody <laughs> caught it on film. Don't cross the streams, Greg. Don't cross the streams. Indeed. It would be really bad, according to 80s popular culture. That's what I've heard. Of course, you can get high-quality photo reproductions of these photos by going to d3photography.com. And also, there's a discount, Greg. That's right, Pat. If you use the discount code D3Football when you check out with your order at d3photography.com that's going to be 10% off of your order and Pat it's holiday season so go to d3photography.com thanks to d3photography.com for sponsoring the d3football.com around the nation podcast game ball game ball game ball game balls game balls it's time for game balls and my game ball is going to Giovanni Weeks Weeks is a starting running back for Wheaton and Mount St. Joseph had Wheaton on the ropes for most of the day, jumping out to a 14-0 lead and then retaking the lead 34-31 with 3.36 remaining in the third quarter. From that point on, though, Weeks ran for 73 of his 256 yards and the crucial final go-ahead touchdown midway through the fourth quarter. Weeks got a season-high 38 carries and ran for four touchdowns to go along with those 256 yards on the day and only got stronger as the game went on. Here's Weeks talking about that after the game. I would say as the game progressed, I think, you know, you just lean into our O-line is what it is. We have some some really good players up front, yeah. and I have a lot of trust for those guys. And I, honestly, I just, a lot of times, you just have to slow down and trust that they're going to uh, open up the, the gaps for me to run through. And I think, especially down in the fourth quarter, I was glad we went back to the run game because it was, you know, I think... 
it just overwhelmed them at the end. And uh, I just, I love physicality. And that's, that's what I love about football. Giovanni Weeks, my game ball. Pat, my game ball is going to go to Union Junior defensive back James Gillespie. Despite playing a half that looked decidedly one-sided in favor of Union, the Garnet Chargers looked set to take a 10-6 lead into halftime following a successful field goal with just 30 seconds left in the first half. Delaware Valley elected to get aggressive with those 30 remaining seconds, and that gamble backfired. 19 seconds to play. Five wide receiver set. Louis Berrios set quarterback. Throws across the middle to the wrong team. Intercepted. And return to the 35, the 30, the 15, and he's gone. Touchdown. Well, Delaware Valley pays for trying to be aggressive. Louis Berrios with a bad throw into the defense, and it's a pick six. And instead of the Aggies getting into the locker room down four, they're going to be down 10 or more. That's Gordon Mann calling Gillespie's 52-yard interception return for a touchdown just before halftime. That score pushed Union's lead to 17-7 and was perhaps the decisive play in the game. Gillespie added a second interception in the second half to go along with his four solo tackles and for his clutch play and helping Union earn the rare first-round road playoff win. James Gillespie gets my game ball. Let's go bracket by bracket through this first round, and why don't we start in the top left? In the top left, Pat, I think we have to start with Trinity and Harden-Simmons, where for the second consecutive season, Trinity ends Harden-Simmons' season in the first round, this time with much less drama as the Tigers rolled to a 20-6 win. The major story in this one comes from a dominant performance from the Trinity defense, allowing just 186 yards of total offense to the Cowboys, including limiting Harden-Simmons to minus three yards rushing. That's not a fluke stat padded by some big negative loss on a bad punt snap. Harden-Simmons just couldn't run. Noah Garcia was limited to just seven yards on seven carries. Colton Marshall also just seven yards on seven carries for Harden-Simmons. Caleb Harmel was his usual dominant self, leading Trinity with seven tackles. He chipped in a sack and one and a half tackles for loss. Mac Douglas added three tackles for loss in this one as well. Offensively, Tucker Horn tallied an efficient 23 for 29 day passing for an even 300 yards and two touchdowns. Harden Simmons only score in this game came with just under one minute to play. Yeah, Greg, that minus three kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, right? Frankly, they just stopped trying. Harden Simmons only ran the ball seven times in the second half. Three of those were on goal to go plays with about three minutes left to play in the game. By the way, not plays that got to them into the end zone. Trinity will be facing a completely different type of team next Saturday in North Central, who's going to run first, second, pass third, run fourth, fifth, sixth, something like that. And Trinity is going to advance to play defending national champion North Central on their 26-game win streak. They cruise through their first-round game with a 65-0 win over Bellhaven. Requisite big days from Luke Lanon with three passing touchdowns and one rushing as well. D'Angelo Hardy caught a touchdown. He threw for one because why not? Sure. Joey Lombardi also with a receiving touchdown and a 93-yard kick return for a score to open the second half. Just big plays all over the place for North Central again this week. Yeah, you want to put those things on film in the first round, right? Things for your future opponents to have to prepare for. Otherwise, I don't know that there's too much to dig into on this one. As long as everyone remains healthy, this is just an opening tune-up for North Central. But it's the only tune-up they're going to get because it's all D3 heavyweights from here on out 
for the Cardinals, who, again, somehow are not the top seed in this bracket as the defending national champ winners of 26 in a row. Defense obviously did a great job as well, pitching a shutout and severely limiting Bell Haven's ability to run the ball. Here's linebacker B.J. Adamchik talking about that after the game. Uh, I mean, that's huge. You know, their identity was their run game. And on Tuesday when we had our first scout meeting, Coach Dirk said the goal was to hold them under two yards. So it's nice to know that we were able to do that. Um, but like I said, that was their whole identity. So being able to understand that was the game plan, that's what their game plan was going to be coming into it. Um, and being able to fall back, like Coach Spencer said, on our D-line and have our linebackers run around, make plays, our safeties come down the hill in the run, run box, that was huge. Greg, let's take it about 30 miles west. Indeed, Aurora's first ever home game in the NCAA tournament was successful as the Spartans advanced with a 20-6 win over Coe. Aurora played this game with backup quarterback Tyler Adkins, filling in for Ian Luyando, who missed this game with injury. Adkins had a decent game against strong Coe defense, going 26 for 40 for 314 yards, one touchdown, and two interceptions. Turnovers were a really big part of this game, 11 in all. Coe turned the ball over seven times, losing four fumbles and throwing three interceptions. It's just not easy to win playoff games when you give away seven possessions. Aurora's defense was spectacular in a game where their offense was not at its high-flying best. Aurora limited co-quarterback Carter Mosk to just 13 of 33 for 128 yards and three interceptions. Coe's only points in this game came via a 100-yard interception return for a touchdown. So nominally a shutout for that Aurora Spartans defense. Absolutely. Learn after the game that Luyando was actually injured in the regular season finale. That's that 23 to nothing win against Concordia, Wisconsin. Someone stepped on his leg. He sustained nerve damage and is apparently done for the season. This is what Don Beebe said in the postgame news conference. Meanwhile, Tyler Adkins just earning raves as a freshman, making his first start and looked pretty good. Greg, we don't have audio of this post-game news conference that I could find, but it was reported in the local media that Don Beebe said, Don Beebe! I'm not going to do a Don Beebe impression. I don't know what that sounds like. I told the joke at halftime, it's the best performance I've ever seen by a 15-year-old kid, Beebe said. He looks 15, but he played like Brett Favre. I've seen that kind of performance from number four. That's serious chess moves by Don Beebe. They're going to Wisconsin, draw that parallel with number four and Brett Favre. He knows what he's doing. Speaking of lacrosse, Wisconsin, that is where UW lacrosse returned the opening kickoff for a touchdown, and it was 35-0 at the end of the first quarter, 52-zip by halftime, and the Eagles won 62-7. Kaiser Helterbrand, you know, the quarterback, we talked about him a half dozen gazillion times. He was out of the game after the first 18 minutes, and the team should be well-rested for Aurora next week. How about that bottom left bracket? Staying in the Chicagoland area, one of the games of the day took place at Wheaton, where the homestanding Thunder outlasted Mount St. Joseph 41-31. to We've already talked a little bit about this game with Wheaton rallying from an early 14-point deficit to win. This game had four lead changes, including a pair in the fourth quarter. In a game highlighted with a lot of offense, it was a Gage Autry interception on a pass deflected at the line by Jaden Ferlita with Mount St. Joseph in the red zone in the fourth quarter that ended the last really good scoring opportunity for the Lions in this game. 41-34, that final. Mount St. Joseph's been looking for an opportunity to get into the top 25 all season, right? And based on who they played throughout the 10-game regular season, especially considering one of those was a loss to Hope. Hope, 
who had one vote in our final regular season poll. That was not something that was going to happen based on them going nine and one. Maybe I could foresee myself putting Mount St. Joseph on my ballot at the end of the year, depending on what happens to Wheaton going on the rest of the bracket here. And Wheaton will be going on in the bracket. They're going to be heading to Wisconsin Whitewater. There were no surprises at Perkins Stadium this year as Wisconsin Whitewater handled Bethel 42 to 14. Alec Ogden completed just 11 passes on Saturday, but four of them went for touchdowns. The Warhawks got a big day out of Tamir Thomas, who gained 156 yards on just 13 carries. Tremendous afternoon for the Warhawk defense as well, limiting Bethel to just nine first downs and 167 yards of total offense. This does, of course, Pat Mark, the final game for Bethel's Steve Johnson. Johnson finishes his career 12th all-time in wins for Division Three coaches with 252 wins over his 35-year career. Remarkable career for Coach Johnson and our congratulations to him. Yeah, I would echo those congratulations. I think too, Greg, you know, one of the best coaching jobs that he's had to do over the course of the past decade this season. I mean, this was a team that was already missing key parts of its prolific offense from last year. And then David Gibley gets hurt. He's the was the starting running back, got hurt all the way back in the season opener, basically. And, you know, Bethel has been trying to put things together ever since. Joey Kidder, who is a guy who was a big-time wide receiver for them in the Jaron Rosti era, just to try to get him the ball. They had him taking snaps in the Wildcat. They had him throwing passes on Saturday. Congratulations to Steve. This is now the second year in a row, by the way, that we have lost the active leader in coaching victories in Division Three football. Of course, last year was Rick Giancola for Montclair State, who did not really leave voluntarily. Steve Johnson gets a chance to go out on his own terms, just not a chance to go out with a W. Elsewhere in the bottom left bracket, we have Chapman and Whitworth. And in the Pine Bowl, Whitworth pulled away from Chapman to secure their spot in the second round with a 42-28 to win. After Chapman scored with one minute and five seconds remaining in the first half, they tied the score there at 14-14. to Whitworth quickly scored on a 10-play 75-yard drive in 57 seconds, which doesn't even seem possible. To That's a lot of plays in 57 seconds. But that gave Whitworth a 21-14 halftime lead. Whitworth then scored the next two touchdowns in the game in the, in the third and fourth quarter to push what was close game out to 35-14. to The Pirates held on from there. That's their 10th win of the season. Austin Ewing, fresh off of his game ball performance last week, threw for 414 yards against what has been a very good Chapman pass defense. Solomon Hines found the end zone four times for the Pirates in their win. Yeah, good job by Whitworth here. I think, first off, just to put the emotional high of last week behind him, right? You go to Linfield, you win, you run the table, you're 9-0, you've won your conference championship, you're going to the NCAA playoffs. You're playing a team that you've already played before this year. You're playing a team from a conference that normally your conference dominates, and it could be understood If maybe your team had a letdown, not a letdown there for sure. Also, no letdown in Waverly, Iowa, where the Wartburg-Illinois College game is kind of in the same boat as that North Central Bellhaven game. And Lacrosse Morris. Wartburg rolls out to a 42-0 lead. And although Illinois College certainly put up some yards, most of it came well after the game was decided. It was the last chance of the season for Destin Chance. He's a quarterback for Illinois College. He was a quarterback on the UW-Whitewater roster in 2019. He's playing under his brother, offensive coordinator Drew Chance, an Illinois College alum. We'll see if the chances 
and Coach Ray DeFrisco get another chance at the postseason next year. So you're telling me there's a chance. Moving on to the top right bracket, where DePaul and Elma, Elma is how you pronounce this. I'm not going to do a whole P101, but Elma is how that's pronounced. They are very, very insistent that you pronounce it Alma, just like the folks in Western Massachusetts don't want to hear any H when you talk about Amherst. This is how you pronounce Alma. Not going to get into Buena Vista. Anyway, beautiful day for a battle of unbeatens up in central Michigan. Beautiful day for football. Great crowd on hand. Greg, the sign as you drive into town, Alma, Michigan, this town of about 9,400 people calls Alma Scotland, USA. So Jason Couch's team comes by its kilt style Honestly, if nothing else, DePaul, they missed Brevin Good. He was the defensive leader who hurt himself in the Monon Bell game last week, but they didn't necessarily lack for vocal leadership on the field and on the sidelines. I asked senior nose tackle Ethan Lowry about this in the postgame. Our uh, other captain, Brevin, he got hurt last week against uh, Wabash, and so we all really just wanted to play for him. And um, throughout the season, I think I've progressed a little bit, being a more vocal leader. But with him being out, I just felt that like I really needed to step up and help lead our defense. And you know, I was just telling the guys on the sideline, like we, everything that they get is something that we give them. And um, it kind of showed in the second half. I mean, I don't know what the exact stats are, but felt like we stopped them pretty much every time, except that long 75-yard touchdown or whatnot. Is was Brevin usually the guy who was the vocal guy, and you were kind of uh, taking that? No, yeah, Brevin's usually. Brevin's usually the like juice energy guy, and I'm I'm still there, but not as much as him. But yeah. Meanwhile, Elma set the tone with its results on DePaul's first play from scrimmage, as Jerome Robertson picked up a fumble and ran it in 21 yards for a touchdown, and Elma started out leading eight to nothing. Robertson tried to deflect and pass light, spread light, spread joy for his teammates, but Jason Couch was having none of it. Mister Humble over there, you know, came from defensive end spot, you know, ran down the the line to get to be in the right spot at the right time. And, uh, you know, we talk on defense. I, I hear coaches talk all the time about how many white helmets can we get to the ball. And that's all he was doing is what he does every single day in practice. Um, and it paid off. And so um, what did he see? I'm sure he saw a maroon end zone in front of him. And, and uh, he's probably right up there with some, one of the fastest on the team, too. And Greg, I thought Alma looked good. If I had a concern, it would be thinking about a couple of the long drives where Alma's defense couldn't get off the field, right? If DePaul can go 16 plays for 63 yards for a score, 11 for 72 yards for a score, plus a 10-play 66-yard drive at the end of the game and a 20-play 62-yard drive in the third. Now, to be clear, those last two were eventually stopped on downs, but either way, it just makes one wonder what Mount Union might be able to do next week in round two. And Coach Couch joined me for Fast Five, so let's talk a little more. See you all met. See you all met. See you all Here in Alma, Michigan, Fast Five with Jason Couch, head coach of Alma, his team defeating DePaul on Saturday, 32-17. First of all, Coach, congratulations on advancing the second round once again. Thank you very much. I appreciate you being here. Well, it was a fun experience to be here. Tell us about uh, a little bit about Saturday's game. I felt like the... Uh, the least impressive thing, and not to say it wasn't impressive, but the least impressive thing was the play of Carter St. John, or the passing, I should say, of Carter St. John. How about let's say it that way? Um, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't say it necessarily that way because uh, he is an outstanding young man, and he's uh, he's our guy. Um, there were a couple missed um, 
shots, right, that uh, we hadn't missed on in, in previous games. And um, so the numbers weren't necessarily uh, that win that would whip across sideways, I think may have played a little, you know, role. Um, really proud. He still orchestrated and we got the ground game going the first half very well. Um, and then, you know, pulled it and uh, some RPO shots and, and made those. So. Yeah, right. So what didn't I see today? What didn't people see today that you'd normally see out of him in a game? Um, it goes back to those deep ball th you know, shots, right? And I think uh, they probably, DePaul probably tightened up a little bit more in the box because we didn't connect on those. Um, in games past, last week, we had a receiver that had four catches for 235 yards and, yeah. and three touchdowns, right? And um, you keep, keep the box stacked, well, we're going to keep taking those shots and um so um that's that's probably the biggest difference um but again to be able to come away with a win against a very good ball club and uh you can't say it was all because of one player two plays right for sure. I think one of the things about uh, this time of year, too, is a, a, a team like yours where you're going to have, with the success you've had this season, you're going to have guys out of the game, right, in the fourth quarter. You know, this is a game where starters are in the whole time and you really get tested all the way down to literally the final whistle. Yeah, and our defense is outstanding, right? There, you, Earlier they talked about how much they love to be on the field. Um, we played a team that I earlier this year, I believe their goal was – um, to run it down the, the play clock to, to one before they snapped it because they didn't want our offense out there. And it was 18 minutes to 42. That was their game plan, right? And uh, But we were still able to put up – we are above uh, like one by three scores. So um, our defense, you know, had some turnovers, caused a few turnovers, had a couple other opportunities that we dropped. But – um, for them to lead the country three years in a row in turnovers is unbelievable. Right, and you're right, had a couple of uh... – <laughs> that dropped a pass all year, and we had two this year, the, today. So. Uh, right. I mean, when I said playing until the final whistle, it's because DePaul was still on the field because uh, you guys didn't pick off that twice, that pass on that drive. All right, tell us just, you know, the the – advancement of the Alma football program here over the course of the past couple of years, right? This is now 11 wins, two seasons in a row, second year in a row, second round of the playoffs. Big picture, what does this mean for the program right now? It means an absolute ton. Um, our alumni are, are are thirsty for wins, right? They, they've, they're so supportive. They're very excited about this. Um, being an alum myself, I, you know, hear from them so often and, uh, this has really just brought excitement, you know, I think back to campus, brought the alums back to campus. And um, COVID was was really tough on us. We, we feel, and everybody, I'm sure, but we base everything about building relationships, right? About spending time with our players and coming to coaches' houses and, and spending time with our families. And with COVID, we weren't able to do that. And I feel like we really did take a step back and uh, but the the seniors who were freshmen during that year kept talking to them stay with us stay with us stay with us and you know to have 36 seniors right uh retaining well over 50 percent and man you saw what you know what they did and uh we're very senior heavy on defense quite younger on offense um which is exciting 
and we talked a little bit about what you face next in the post-game news conference. But again, you know, Mount Union is what's next on the bracket for you guys. Yeah, I, I don't need to say it, right? They're a ph- phenomenal team. Uh, the program is one that model after that you hope to get to, right? That's the goal, right? And uh, so it's going to be a heck of a challenge. I know our guys are going to be excited to be down there and play. You know, at some point I'm going to be telling them, you know, I don't know if I'll literally pull out the Hoosiers clip where we're going to go measure the goalposts and all that stuff. But, you know, it's we're going to make sure that we're ready to play. They're, you know, you don't need to see stars. Let's just play football. You're telling me that the field in Alliance, Ohio is 100 yards in length, just like every other. If it's not, I'll report them. But, yeah, I'm sure it is. And, you know, that no, Coach has done an amazing job to keep that program where it is. And that's the respect that we hope to have here. How about Pat bringing the heat to start Fast Five? Wow. I did not know I was bringing the heater out uh, with the first pitch in Fast Five. I was just trying to get uh, across the point that, he wasn't the best part of their game on Saturday, and that surprised me. I I was probably too hyped up. I got off to too fast a start in Fast Five. It's very windy out there. Maybe a little wind blown on that first question, but you know, perhaps not the best game we've seen from Carter St. John overall. But DePaul's been a very good defense, and they they're what you know what I would estimate as about a Category Four force hurricane wind at Alma based on. <laughs> the on-field spot that uh, you gave us during the bracket blitz. But Alma still found a way to get over 30 on the board. They won the game fairly comfortably. I think Jason Couch's comments about the defense here are really important. We saw in the first round teams that have hung their hat on crazy offensive stats all year, bow out Illinois College, uh, one of those teams, Mount St. Joseph, another. But the teams that remain, these are the teams that are matching prolific offenses with very good defenses. So Alma gets on the board first on Saturday after just one play from scrimmage, and it's the defense in the end zone on a scoop and score following a forced fumble of Gabe Quigley. And now for the second consecutive year, Alma is playing into the second round of the tournament, and as Jason Couch says, this is fueling support from alumni in the college community. There's a lot of momentum in the program right now. Success feels like it's something that could be self-sustaining for a longer period of time, even as Alma is going to do some significant reloading on that defense after the season concludes. Yeah, Alma and that senior-laden defense will get Mount Union next week. Alfred State kept it close through 30 minutes, including stopping Mount on a fourth and goal from the one, then later intercepting a pass in the end zone to keep the score 28-14 to at the half. But it only took six plays into the third quarter for it to be 35-14, and Mountain Union made it look its usual first round easy after that in a 56 to 14 win. Purple Raiders had the luxury of giving star defensive player Rossi more the day off, and they didn't miss a beat. It's great to be able to do that during a playoff run. And on the other half of the top right quadrant, we got two very good games, including the very best finish of the day between Grove City and Susquehanna. This game was largely a defensive battle with the game tied 7 to 7 late in the first half. Grove City lined up to attempt a 45-yard field goal that was blocked by Jake Schultes and returned 72 yards for a touchdown by Keith Green III to give Susquehanna a 14-7 lead at halftime. Grove City's defense, they continued to hold Susquehanna at bay, limiting the Riverhawks to just two field goals in the second half. That second field goal gives Susquehanna a 20-14 lead 
with one minute and 55 seconds to play. Too much time. Too much time. Way too much. That 155 was just enough time for Grove City quarterback Logan Pfeiffer to engineer an 11-play an drive, and that 11th play is 4th and 10 from the Susquehanna 13, and it sounded like this. Scott Frazier will be the receiver to the left side. To the right side, it'll be Lenhart, Heckathorn, and Sullivan with Joey Guida, the tailback. Fourth down and 10, 13 seconds to play. Guida now moves to the left of Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer back to throw, has time. Looking for the end zone, and what is the call? Touchdown! It is a touchdown for the Wolverines with seven seconds to play in the fourth quarter. Ryan Lenhart, 6'4", 250, making the catch to tie it at 20. Ryan Lenhart, first catch of the day. How about that? So Keekley on for the extra point. Otwell to snap. Gutierrez to hold. Snap down, extra point on the way, and the kick is good. Seven seconds to go here in the fourth quarter. 21-20, Grove City leading Susquehanna. And that highlight brought to us by Mark Means and Ryan Briggs of the Wolverine Sports Network team, Western Reserve Radio. That play plus the extra point gives Grove City a 21-20 win at Susquehanna, and the Grove City Wolverines win their first ever playoff game, 1-0 all time. Big day for the folks from Western PA. Here's Logan Pfeiffer and Ryan Leonard talking about it after the game. Uh, you know, they're a double team of Scotty. Uh, they're doing that rest of the uh, game, usually down the last drive. So I knew I was going to work Scotty there. Line hard over the middle. Got some pressure, just put it up, and this kid made a great play. Great, great catch. And Ryan, it was your only catch of the game. You made it count. Uh, what, what were you seeing uh, on the receiving end of it? I mean, I got that look a couple times where they were just trailing me, and I knew that if Mojo put it up over there, I could probably make the catch over the guy, and I, I did, I guess. It's a good <laughs> ball, great ball. Could have done it without him. So going to the NCAA second round, uh, what it mean first to, to play in the playoffs and then to win a playoff game? You know, it's special whenever you, you know, first time we win Packer, long time, then first time playoff appearance, then first playoff win, you know, it's always special to this first. So that's, I can't wait to play the second round. Take the words right out of my mouth. I mean, there's nothing much else to say other than that. It's what we're playing for. It's what we're here to do. So this sets up a game between Grove City and Cortland as Cortland survived at Endicott 23-17. Greg, Endicott continues to get so close to advancing in the playoffs. So close. And in Beverly, Cortland never trailed, but did have to hold on on the final play as Endicott had one shot to tie the game from the 11-yard line, but Clayton Marenghi's pass to the end zone sailed high and Cortland held on to win. Cortland had led 20-10 to 10 before Marenghi connected on a deep ball to Shane Aylward. You remember these guys? They're fast five in podcast 335. 69 yards later, a touchdown, and this cuts the lead to three with 146 left in the third. Cortland eventually took advantage of a short punt and had a short drive for a field goal to go up by six. That set up the final drive and the final play. And here are Cortland coach Kurt Fitzgerald and defensive lineman Max Llewellyn to talk us through it. We, we were able to take a timeout right, right before that play, so I wanted to try and, try and um, get the ball, call, call the timeout as they snap the ball, which is what happens. We, we could see what type of play they were going to run. And then be, basically we, we were just playing zone, zone coverage um, at the goal line and just trying to keep the ball in front of us. You know, um, if 11, you know, the QB, Clayton, he's a hellcat of a player. You know, we wanted to try and flush him out of the pocket and make him a run, a run pass threat there. Um, and he ended up throwing the ball from the pocket, trying to throw it on rhythm, and we just played 
played really good coverage. Um, so, I mean, on that play, I'm just thinking about pushing that pocket in, keeping my cage. Uh, I th- we might have had a movement coming on the other side, but I just wanted to stay on top of him and uh, make sure he doesn't try to escape because that's when they were kind of getting free and making some plays. But yeah, we I was pressing the pocket. We we pushed him down. He was getting antsy in there, and he just fired it. And that's it. We I think we had a freshman out there, Eli Alvarez, make a play on that ball. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had Caleb Paul fumble recovery, first snap on a varsity like game. It was one snap, one fumble recovery yeah, for Caleb yeah, Paul. Yeah, you can't write that stuff. You can't write that stuff. We could try to write that stuff, but it's always better in reality. It is. There's a really great defense on that final play from the Red Dragons. I don't know if Morangi thought he might have had one more play after throwing that ball out of play, but had he thrown inbounds, I'm not sure there was any place to complete that pass. Not sure anybody would have picked Endicott to throw for more yardage than Cortland, but that goal defense did a great job defending Zach Boys and his receivers. Big offensive star for Cortland on Saturday was Jaden Alfano St. John, who carried 26 times for 157 yards and one score. And that Cortland win sets up an intriguing game with Grove City. Obviously, the common opponent between these two is Susquehanna, where Grove City beat Susquehanna on essentially the last play of the game. Susquehanna earlier this season beat Cortland on the last play of the game. And this one is going to shape up to be uh, a toss up in round two. Jaden Alfano, St. John, you know what I'm going to say. The best St. John on the field on Saturday. Jaden, greater than Carter, greater than the folks from Collegeville who didn't get an opportunity to play. And in the bottom right bracket, we've already touched on the defensive battle that was Union and Delaware Valley, a game which Union won 24-16. to One key note is that Union's top running back, Michael Fiore, was injured on the Garnet Chargers' first drive of the third quarter after a play fake to him, he gets caught up in traffic and he gets his uh, left leg, his lower left leg rolled up on, unable to put any weight on that leg as he was being helped off the field. And while I am not an athletic trainer or an orthopedic surgeon, my unofficial diagnosis is I don't expect him to be able to play this week. That's a big loss for Union, obviously, but maybe slightly more forgiving defense coming up next week. Against Johns Hopkins, maybe you'll get Picotti to have a little more opportunity throwing the ball next week and need to rely a little less on on Fiore. Especially if you look at like the first, what, 15, 20 minutes of that Johns Hopkins game, Saturday against Western Connecticut, that score certainly turned a bunch of heads early, and there's a reason why, right? Wolves quarterback Keon Jones, he's a super talented guy, moved into the starting lineup during the course of the regular season. He broke a couple of big pass plays in the first half, but it went from a 28-20 lead for Johns Hopkins with 4.47 to play in the first half to 41-20 at the half after Zach Oligood intercepted Jones and set up his team with great field position with 29 seconds left in the half. Spencer Ugla running back for the Blue Jays. He finished with 216 yards rushing and his teammates combined for six rushing touchdowns while Bay Harvey also threw three TD passes. Here's Ugla on the importance of performing at a playoff level. What we preach all season is just stacking good days every day, whether it's practice, film, lift. So uh, at the end of the day, it's just another week, and, and we just have to keep stacking good days. And, and there's, there's no room for error in the playoffs. And, and you know, as you can see how it, how it shakes out with just only 32 teams, like there's really no room for error ever in the entire season. So we've kind of been approaching each game like it is a playoff game um, and just kind of keeping that mentality rolling. Browns Hopkins playing Liberty League 
at-large team Union in round two. We're going to stay with the Liberty League here and move over to Springfield, Massachusetts, where Ithaca kind of out-Springfielded Springfield in the Bombers' 21-7 win against the Pride. Ithaca received the opening kickoff and proceeded to use 18 plays to meander 68 yards to the end zone in a drive that consumed nine minutes and 38 seconds of the first quarter game clock. If Ithaca's first drive took the local, their second drive was on the express as they needed just three plays to go 99 yards for a second first quarter touchdown. Jalen Leonard Osborne with a 90 yard run that set up that touchdown for the Bombers. Springfield never did get their option offense going as the pride were limited to just 165 yards of total offense. Ithaca, on the other hand, rushed for 265 yards in the game. Uh, Jalen Leonard Osborne with 165 yards rushing and two touchdowns. Jalen Leonard Osborne is a guy whose name we've already mentioned quite a bit on this podcast. And, you know, with the quarterback change, with the injury to A.J. Wingfield, with freshman Colin Shum being pushed into the starting lineup, even a bigger role for this guy in the backfield. And Greg, what about CNU versus Randolph-Macon? Very surprised that this game remained in play long enough to get to onside kicks. Randolph-Macon scored the fewest points it had all season, and it allowed the most points it had in 2023 as the Yellow Jackets got past Christopher Newport 28-20. to Macon goes up 28-10 to early in the fourth, but unable to put the captains away. CNU comes right back with a long TD pass from Matt Zierski to Colin Hart to cut it to 11. Randolph-Macon had a field goal blocked, and CNU parlayed that into a field goal to make it 28-20 with 2.56 to go. But CNU could not cover the onside kick, and Randolph-Macon did one of the things that Keith McMillan used to talk about on this podcast quite a bit. Oh yeah, this is going to be good. And taking the ball and never giving it back, running out the final 2.51 till they got to the victory formation and survived with that eight-point win. I'll tell you, Greg, this makes Macon against Ithaca next week look super interesting because I think Ithaca is more talented than Christopher Newport for sure. I think so. And Ithaca, you know, played according to the NCAA, the strongest schedule in Division Three this season. Uh, they played Hopkins. They have played Cortland. They went on the road just now to beat Springfield. Uh, this is a team that has won and played in a lot of really big games against a lot of talented teams. And yeah, I think it's a really interesting game. And we saw, you know, Randolph Macon maybe getting their first real test this week. Um, bigger test coming in round two against Ithaca. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. Stat of the week. And my stat is going to be about, well, every game, Greg. We've seen all sorts of hand-wringing and histrionics about how many first-round blowouts there are in the Division Three playoffs, and lots of people saying this as if it's some breathless new discovery. Oh my gosh, I've just divined that there are going to be lots of blowouts in the first round of this playoffs. Folks, this is nothing new. In fact, this was actually one of the better first rounds. Tracking back over the 18 seasons in which we've had a 32-team bracket and nobody with a first-round bye... This year's first round average margin of victory of 23.4 points was actually the sixth lowest over that span since 2005. It had the second fewest blowouts of any first round in this span with just six. There were five one-score games, which is pretty average. Folks, it could have been a lot worse. Like in 2018, when the average game was won by 32.1 points and there were 12 blowouts 
These are wins by 21 or more points. You may remember that as the year in which St. John's defeated Martin Luther 84 to 6 and UW Whitewater beat Eureka 67 to 14. They're real brutal. It's a real brutal place. Could have been so much worse. Stat of the week. We often say that while our top 25 won't tell you who will get into the NCAA tournament or even who will host games in the tournament, our poll will give you a good indication of who should win playoff games. And Pat, in round one, the top 25 correctly predicted 14 of the 16 first round games. The two misses, number 18 Grove City's last second win against number nine Susquehanna and unranked Union's win at number 25, Delaware Valley. Delval finally getting knocked off after weeks of avoiding the quick hits upset pick, living in that 25 spot. But that's one, Pat. Delaware Valley and Union, I'm talking about where I think you and I have had Union ranked and Delval not for a number of weeks now. So we're in disagreement with the poll on that one. D3football.com, top 25, 14-2 in round one, and that is my stat of the week. Good stat, Greg. I agree. You've been listening to the marketing materials as well when you say that uh, our top 25 won't help you know who's going to get into the tournament, but it'll give you an idea of who will win. I appreciate that. Of course, one of the things about the second round of the Division Three playoffs is that it comes over Thanksgiving weekend, and sometime between now and then, there will be a time to reflect and be thankful. For example, Greg, I'm just thankful that there are so many Division Three football fans, passionate ones at that, that make this labor of love thing that we take part in every year seem worthwhile. So I am thankful for you all, all you fans of Division Three football. Greg, what are you thankful for? That's really well said, Pat. One thing that I'm thankful for are all of the SIDs out there that help us be able to gather the information and talk to the coaches and student athletes that we want to feature in our columns every week. Usually our requests have really tight turnarounds and SIDs help make that happen for us. And now during playoff time, SIDs are pulling double duty with the end of fall sports season, beginning of winter sports season. So their time is stretched really unfathomably thin. I'm grateful for their efforts and thank you from me to all of the SIDs and athletics communications professionals across the division that help us out really starting in July and all the way through the Stag Bowl. Another great group without whom we would not be able to do this. So thank you to all of the athletics communicators out there. It was just recently College Sports Communicators Recognition Week. And thank you for everything that you do. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. All right, we know you have questions. We threw out the call on X on Sunday afternoon. We got some great ones. We'll try to touch on a number of them maybe uh, more briefly than we usually would. And this is from Cameron Thiel at Cameron with a C, T-H-E-I-L-E, asking, was the Empire 8 that week this year? Brockport rolled the whole Empire 8, except Cortland, of course, but got crushed by Carnegie Mellon in the bowl game. Uh, it was a bowl game, a, a number of bowl games. It took place, of course, on Saturday. There were 16 first-round playoff games, and I think I counted up 16, uh, well, 13 bowls and then three NESCAC games that took place on Saturday. And, Greg, that was definitely the bowl I was maybe second most interested in this week, the one in which Carnegie Mellon beat Brockport 37-7. to Isthmus Bowl, obviously, between the 
top runners up available in the CCIW and the WIAC, I think is always going to be the one I'm most interested in because it's the one that matches up two power conferences. But, you know, yeah. So Cortland has its way with Brockport. Brockport has its way with just about everybody else. And I think the only other kind of data point from Saturday that might contradict this would be Utica from the Empire 8 beating Hobart from the Liberty League 10 to 6 in a bowl game as well. Yeah, I think you saw Utica take a step back this year. Still pretty good Division 3 team, not a not a playoff quality Division 3 team, but they did go and beat Hobart in their postseason game here. The rest of the Empire 8 has struggled this year, I think. Um, not really a lot of players beyond Cortland, Brockport, and and Utica. Um, we've you know we've been missing Alfred as a as a contender in that league for a couple of years. St. John Fisher, we know, uh, has been struggling for a little bit. Hartwick has been struggling. Um, so is the Empire eight weak? I mean, they've got some non-competitive teams at the bottom, but at the top, Cortland is very good. They're playing into the second round, we know. And, you know, I think Brockport looked really good this year. I had Brockport ranked at one point uh, later in the season until until they fell down at, at Cortland. But, you know, the Empire 8 maybe not quite as strong as longtime Division Three fans might remember it being, um, but still some very good teams in the E8, I think. Here's one from DMs. Uh, since it was DM'd, I'm not going to name the person who sent it, but the question is, can either of you remember a year when one team looked as unbeatable as North Central does this year? I haven't seen anything that looks remotely close to a weakness for the Cardinals. And then there was a public tweet, a public post that said, can this version of the Mountain Union offense challenge North Central? And that came from the TMAC3. I would say this, of course, yes, I think that's true. This version of the Mountain Union offense can challenge North Central. I would say this, though. I mean, I think defensively would still have some questions about North Central. You know, Wheaton scored a good number of points on them. Obviously, Wheaton did score a number of those points after the game was already decided. But, uh, you know, they're not getting Dan Lester back. Or if they are getting Dan Lester back, he's just not going to be healthy. They tried him out in that Wheaton game, and he is just not able to go. Obviously, this is now we're talking about eight weeks later or something like that. But that's a big piece of that uh, that defensive success from last year that they're missing. It is. I think for me, the the to answer the question about can anybody challenge North Central, I'm not necessarily looking at Mount Union's offense to decide whether or not they can challenge North Central or anybody else, really. No matter how good your offense is, unless you have a defense that can keep North Central from gaining 9 or 10 or 11 yards per play in a game, it doesn't matter how good your offense is. So I'm looking at teams that might have defenses with the capability of slowing down North Central and preventing all of the explosive plays that they give you each and every week. And it, until there's a defense that can do that, North Central probably looks like uh, an overwhelming favorite in this tournament, even even on the road that they've been given. Yeah, absolutely right. They are still head, shoulders, and maybe torso above everybody else. That's what I told someone at Alma on Saturday. I'm going to continue with that phraseology until somebody says otherwise um you know can you get into a shootout with them and maybe go toe-to-toe and win 52 49 for example that's certainly possible you have to be able to score every single time you touch the football i think 
uh, unless you have a defense that's capable of at least slowing down North Central. And, you know, there is hope, folks, right? North Central over the course of the regular season, uh, quite well known that they averaged 10.2 yards per touch, right? Every single time they snap the ball, they average a first down. On Saturday, it was only, only 9.1 yards per snap. So there's hope. One more we'll take. And this is from Dylan Kramer at Steel Town 86. Steel with an E on the end, Town with an E on the end. I expect you all to go onto X and look for this tweet. But the question is, Logan Ratings, you know Logan Hansen, friend of the podcast, mentioned that there is a 1-6 in six chance of all eight home teams winning in the round of 16. Which away teams have the best shot at winning this weekend? Now, this guy has a Grove City logo on his profile, so you can kind of see what he's fishing for. But, I mean, you just have to do the uh, law of common opponents, right? I mean... Grove City beat Susquehanna, Susquehanna beat Cortland. Therefore, you have to at least believe that it's possible that Grove City could beat Cortland. And since, Greg, we are have not talked about the second-round matchups in this way so far, here's an opportunity for us to do a little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit of uh, leading the witness, Your Honor, on this one. Uh, looking at road teams with opportunities to win, I think uh, certainly Grove City is one I think we talked earlier the the common opponent results would indicate that that game is kind of a toss-up so Grove City definitely has as a chance to win at Cortland I think that game is certainly within reach for the Wolverines Ithaca at Randolph-Macon I think that's one that I'm looking at where a road team has a good chance to to win a game Union at Hopkins maybe a little further down on the on the on the spectrum there but I think we've seen Hopkins play some games where they were not overly dominant. Franklin and Marshall comes to mind. I think you can catch Hopkins on a day where they don't score 60 points and give yourself a chance to win. And Union's defense is good enough to to challenge Hopkins. I was thinking about Aurora too. I would feel better if it were Ian Luyando who's made 10 starts already this season, but maybe there's a chance that uh, Aurora can catch UW lacrosse in that manner possible for Aurora to do that but Aurora now is going to lean on that defense more than their offense I think to give themselves a chance to win at lacrosse we should write a story about that this week on d3football.com what do you think that sounds like a great feature idea something to roll out during feast week here Mm, feast week I like it and I look at the rest of the bracket like you know I'd be interested to see what the Alma Mount Union game looks like, but I don't know that they necessarily have a chance to win that game on the road. And I don't know about Wheaton at Whitewater. Wheaton's struggled in some games this season that would seem at odds with winning at Whitewater, right? You need the last play and a two-point conversion in order to beat Wash U, and then you need to score 10 points in the fourth quarter to get past Mount St. Joseph. I don't know that that necessarily translates to going to Whitewater and winning. If they get into a situation where they can lean on Geo Weeks for 30-plus carries, something like that, and control the game, give Whitewater a little bit of their own pound-the-rock medicine, uh, perhaps Wheaton can can put themselves in a position to be uh, in that game to win late. Pound-the-rock medicine sounds like it's an antibiotic. Geo Weeks this week, 38 carries. That was his season high and then just to tie this all back together the other uh the other bowl that of course is always interesting is the butterburger bowl 
right? The Isthmus Bowl between the uh, runners-up in the WIAC and the CCIW. And this is just to underscore one of the points from earlier, right? I don't know how good the offenses were kind of across the board in the CCIW this season. And so, you know, North Central put up some great numbers, but maybe only Wheaton was a really good quality offense this past week. On Saturday, UW-Platteville beat Augustana 36-10, to which is, by the way, now the third time that the WIAC has won this bowl. Obviously, they have home state advantage, but... Um, I feel like that kind of adds to the point of, you know, third best team in the CCIW only able to score 10 points against the tied for third team in the WIAC. Perhaps the CCIW needs to have Portillo's sponsor a bowl game that might favor a more Illinois Chicago based situation rather than the Culver's Isthmus Bowl, which might be might be slightly biased towards the Wisconsin's. Portillo's Giordano's Giordano's is good. Is that too? I don't know. You know, someone's going to say, Oh my God, no, that's too, that's too mass market deep dish pizza. What the hell are you talking about? Thanks to everybody for all your questions. Of course, you can always do more of that by posting at us at D three football and use that D three FB hashtag. I mean, assuming you want more people to see what you're writing about. All right. Quick hits is down to, this very, you know, very numeric way of measuring how we performed. How do we perform? Quick hits panel. Pat had a great first round, I think. Frank Rossi leads the way with a perfect 16 for 16 week, including a perfect score prediction in the Grove City Susquehanna game, 21 to 20. Congratulations to Frank Rossi on that. I don't know if anybody else predicted an actual score correctly, but that's the only one that I've been told about Ryan tips, Logan Hansen and Keith McMillan. Yeah. He's back for quick hits this postseason. Each missed just one game. They have 15 correct picks. Riley Zayas missed two in the Hopkins quadrant. He got foiled by union and Ithaca. We'll have to ask Riley what his deal with the Liberty league is, but <laughs> he got the other 14 games right in the bracket. Pat, you and I, we're at the bottom of the stack this week. We each missed three games, and we got 13 correct. We missed on Susquehanna and Chapman, both of us. You missed on Co. I missed on Springfield. Interestingly, our lowest scores in this round are higher than the highest quick hit scores from round one last year, which was uh, a wacky round. Definitely was a wacky first round last year. Uh, I took some chances. Uh, they generally did not pan out, so... Only 13 out of 16 in the first round, for which I will submit myself to 30 lashes. More coaching changes over the course of the past week. A couple of them announced. Stan Zwiefel, one of the most successful head coaches in the history of the University of Dubuque football, hanging it up. He was the guy who was the offensive coordinator the first two years that UW-Whitewater went to the Stag Bowl. And then he went on to Dubuque and became the second winningest head coach all time at University of Dubuque. Dean Paul, leaving Ohio Northern. Uh, Dean Paul has been there for a good long time. He had success as a head coach at Thomas Moore and then led Ohio Northern to the playoffs on multiple occasions. 161 wins and 89 losses. He was among the top 10 winningest active coaches in Division Three. Dustin Haas, the head coach at Carthage, he resigned. They have a new coach at Adrian. Then, of course, we have 
a bunch of previously announced retirements. We talked about Steve Johnson, of course. We've talked about Marty Favret at Hampton, Sydney on this podcast before, and uh, John Welty retired. If you are nominating for all region, nominate for all region. Do not wait until the very hard a week from Tuesday deadline. And by a week from Tuesday, I mean specifically to say Tuesday, November 28th. Do not wait for the last minute because I might not be able to help you with one hour notice. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 344, released on November 20th, 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage all postseason. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers, and you can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. If you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alumnus about this show. Give us a five-star rating or a review in Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined because that helps other people find this show. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X using the D3FB hashtag. I post at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports, did you know? Join the conversation by registering a post at d3boards.com using a legitimate email address when you register. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. It's written by Patrick Coleman and Greg Thomas. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Additional audio provided by Grove City, North Central, Wheaton, Johns Hopkins, and Cortland Sports Information. Thank you for putting your post-game news conferences online. Super helpful. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Jason Couch for joining us. Thanks to Alma Sports Information and Alma Athletics for hosting me this past weekend. Keith McMillan, we mentioned him earlier. He intercepted some passes. He talked on a lot of podcasts. He was also the originator of Around the Nation on d3football.com. We're super grateful for that. I think we may even get him to go to Randolph-Macon next week for that second round game. Also, even more grateful that Greg Thomas, that you're sitting here in the other window on this web-based conferencing software and co-hosting the podcast. I'm grateful to be here. Tis the season for gratefulness. Grateful to be putting up a tree in my house when we're done with this. Are you going to grow limes or avocados or something? No, we're going to grow cheer and joy and holiday festivity. Rambo's carving knife always asks such fun questions. As do any of the D3 committee people, past or present, tell you privately off the record, yeah, we know this system sucks. I feel like they feel like they do the thing that they can do within the system. The only thing that we've heard, we hear it over and over this year, is that there just aren't enough at-large bids. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah, I think maybe the most... The closest to the closest to that, I think we ever get is an acknowledgement of some of the the limitations with bracketing principles that they have. I, I think there's been an acknowledgement that the the way they pair Texas teams and the way that they have paired Texas teams with West Coast teams over the years is not something that they are particularly in favor of, but that's a thing that gets mandated. I'll tell you what, Greg, I mean, one year when I was doing the selection show still on ESPN, I was given a copy of the bracket that had 
a game where Wartburg was getting on a plane to go to the West Coast and a West Coast team was coming to the Midwest and then it was rescinded and sent back differently and Wartburg played I think UW Stevens point that year putting some that's putting some date on on this material UW Stevens point in the in the postseason there'll be a time to uh to look at all this stuff and to reflect but now's not the time 